Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm really happy to be in this place at this time. In this place because the Bay Area is just has the most remarkable concentration of people who pay attention to food, food policy issues and obesity, the physiology of obesity, everything. Um, and if you, if you put together the people in San Francisco who work here academically and produce scholarly work, the people in San Francisco who are doing public policy work, the city, the state of California, many people are involved in this, and of course the tremendous concentration of people on the other side of the Bay Bridge is really remarkable. Pat Crawford's here from Berkeley with her colleagues, and they're doing remarkable work there. Uh, the Prevention Institute in Berkeley, people like Michael Pollan, and the, the list just goes on and on and on. There's just no concentration anywhere in the country of people doing this kind of work, so it's a real pleasure for me to be here. I'm happy to be here at this time because um, we're at this very interesting crossroads in dealing with this issue. Um, many of us have spent years and years trying to get people to pay attention to this problem. That issue has been resolved. That problem has been solved. <coughs> and we have so many people now that are attending to the obesity issue that range from the White House, an unprecedented level of interest in this. We all know about that. People in Congress, people in state legislators, state legislatures, and even the state attorneys general are now engaged in this process in ways that I'll talk about a little bit later. And this has been so helpful and so important, and it leads us to this different challenge, which is what to suggest should be done. And that's not so easy. So when legislators come to us and say, what should we do, we have a, a menu a mile long of things that could be done, and everybody has their favorite ideas. But what do we know about what can be done, and what can we recommend in terms of empirically validated approaches, things that have a scientific basis, et cetera? And then the question becomes more complicated. But that's where we are, and so it becomes a very interesting and challenging point in time. So I'm happy to be here to talk to you about it. And one of the, the issues that I think is will soon explode onto the scene is the issue of food and addiction. And the reason I believe it will explode onto the scene is that the science on this becomes more compelling almost by the day. Animal studies, human studies, testimony from people who've struggled with this issue, you put this all together into a picture, it becomes very interesting and provocative. I became interested in the issue of food and addiction not only because it's scientifically fascinating and very important for the humans who deal with this issue, but it has enormous public policy implications. One can just imagine the legality or morality of marketing foods to children if they're found to be addictive. One can imagine what legal authorities could do with this information. One can imagine how the public will feel about industry intentionally manipulating ingredients if those things are declared to be addictive. So there are tremendously important implications, and so I'd like to talk about some of those today. Uh, Alyssa mentioned that I direct a center at Yale called the Rudd Center. Uh, this is really a remarkable place, full of energetic, passionate people doing incredible work. I'm the most blessed person in the world to be able to work with these individuals. And we have a great website that's listed down there. Alyssa mentioned that. The website is rich with information on food, food policy issues. There's a free monthly newsletter that gets dispatched to people by email that talks about food and food policy issues, so you're welcome to get that. And we also have a series of podcasts that we've recorded. 
Um, we record more podcasts than any unit of the university at Yale, and we generally do them with people who have come through to give talks. Experts in the field have come through to do talks. So Alyssa is, has been recorded with podcasts and a variety of other good people like Michael Pollan have done podcasts. So they're really terrific, and it's a variety of legal experts, legislative leaders, uh, media people who are dealing with this issue. And so I urge you to come to our website if you're interested. Now, we have a, a strained relationship with food, a distant relationship with food, and some of you who have heard me talk will know what the, the answer to this question is, but I will very often show this list of ingredients and ask people if they can identify the food. So it's not a trick question, it's a food you've all heard of or know about, but the question is can you guess what it is? So those of you who haven't heard me talk and have seen this so you know the punchline, can anybody guess what this is? Pop-Tart? Twinkies. Twinkies. Ships Ahoy. Ships Ahoy. Okay, well the fact is, you, any, you could all be right. <laughs> you know, there, there are a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand products in the American food supply that would have some combination of this, ingre in this ingredient. So the, the, the most noteworthy thing about this list of ingredients is how long it is. There are 56 things in this ingredient list. And it wasn't that long ago, in American history even, where if there had been such a thing as food labels, it would have had one thing on it. It would have been the food. And it would have been lettuce, it would have been beef, it would have been whatever it happened to be, but it wouldn't have had 56 things in it. And the question is, what do some of these things do to the brain? What do they do to our internal homeostatic mechanisms that were put in place to protect us against disease? And are these things hitting the brain in a way that create addictive processes. And to the extent the answer to that is yes, we've got a real problem on our hands. Now, whoever guessed Pop-Tart was correct, <clears throat> it's a chocolate Pop-Tart. I've got a box of them for you because you won the contest. <clears throat> and so one one that could, could really ask, what, what is this? And is this a food? So people like Michael Pollan have made brilliant arguments about whether you should actually consider this a food. Is it found in nature? No. Is it something that our ancestors would have recognized as food? No. Is it something, this class of food products, is it something that can go into the body and not create metabolic havoc? Well, there are all these interesting questions that get raised that one could really ask if it's a food. You know, is, is it something that should be regulated by the EPA rather than the FDA? And again, who knows what these things are doing? And then, you know, this is, this is tongue-in-cheek, but apropos of the title of the conference here, is this the kind of thing that ha can, cr can create enough addictive properties or has enough addictive properties to it that there's a public health menace at work? And those are the questions that we'll talk about today. So we're distant from our food. We have a distant relationship with food that humans never used to have. Uh, it's physical distance and it's psychological distance. Psychological because we're no longer connected with who grew the food, where it came from, what was put on it, whether it was genetically modified, et cetera, the thing that people that worry about a lot who care about sustainability. But then there's also the physical distance with things being mass produced, shipped very long distances, uh, processed in ways that they have almost infinite shelf life. And as a consequence, this distance from food has made us um, trust the food industry to put things in there that are okay for us. 
and whether that trust is well placed or not will depend on everybody's opinion but we at least have to ask the question and so these this set of questions about how the food is grown and how it gets to us and things are more and more important but not important to many people still so we'll start off with the question about what might be addictive if food can trigger an addictive process, what is it that might be doing it? Well, we think first of the macronutrients like sugar and fat, and you'll hear more, I haven't heard the talks that are about to follow mine, but I'm imagining you'll hear more about sugar today than you will about anything else because that's been studied the most. But there are a lot of other possible players in the picture. All the additives that showed up in the 56 ingredient list uh, are possible players here. Uh, the food industry uh, refers to these euphemistically as flavor enhancers, things that maximize consumption of the product. And I don't really know whether, and in fact, I kind of doubt whether the food industry has you internally uses addiction to talk about uh, desire for their products. And I don't accuse them of intentionally trying to get people addicted. They are, of course, in the business of maximizing the consumption of their products. And to what extent do those two concepts overlap, maximizing consumption of a product and addiction. And those are the questions that science has to answer. And then there are things added like high fructose corn syrup that could potentially be a player here. So it's very important that we look at the array of different things that are added to foods that may create an addictive process. So in my mind, these are the, the key questions. With in my, in, in my own belief, the bottom question being the most important of all. So What's the relevance for public health here, and uh, what can we do as a society to address this issue of food and addiction? So most everybody here knows obesity enough to have seen the CDC maps of obesity prevalence. So I'm not going to go through them so, so much, but just to kind of show you the changing colors. And it, these, these changing colors speak to a remarkable increase in the spread of a disease. Um, and it, it rivals something that, that would be a highly infectious disease even. And so, but given that it's not an infectious disease, then how in the world could something like this be explained? Well, there's a terrible food and physical activity environment. It's not about biology for the most part. It's not about personal irresponsibility. This is clearly a product of a bad environment. And the bad environment has a, a lot of features to it. Increasing portion sizes, relentless marketing, there's a long list of those things. And the question is, where does food and addiction fit in this picture? And does food have enough addictive properties to do this? And this is not an issue that's just affecting the US. If you look at data, say, from the European Union in five-year chunks, you'll see the countries change color as well. These are for females, but the male data look very similar. So 80 to 84, up to 89, then to 94, 99, and then 2005. So the developed countries share this problem. And what about the developing countries? Well, this slide shows data on the projected increases in diabetes between 2000 and 2030. Uh, we're expecting 37% increase in the U.S., which is incredibly alarming given the high rates of diabetes that we have now. But in China, the numbers will look like this, and in India, they'll look like that. So, of course, they started with a lower denominator than we did, so you have to factor that in. But the populations are so enormous that the, the increased world burden in terms of new cases of diabetes is basically going to be coming from countries like this. 
and one would have never imagined the day when this would have happened. You know, back when I was a kid and we were told to clean our plates because there were starving children in China, I mean, now the whole situation has changed, and the nutrition crisis in these countries has gone from under to overnutrition. Not that undernutrition has been wiped away, it's certainly not, but these problems are very severe. And again, what could be driving this? Um, if we collapse data across all developed and developing countries, we get this kind of picture in the next 25 years or so. So the question is, what's gone so terribly wrong? And is addiction a player in this picture? So why should we care about it? Well, to the extent food can trigger an addictive process, understanding this process could help us know why people don't eat optimal diets. Uh, certainly treatment for the people that are afflicted by this problem could be developed and refined. And then what I'm going to be talking about most today are things like legislation, regulation, and even the possibility of litigation and how this might fit into the picture. So is the concept plausible of food and addiction? So it's plausible from the point of view of stories people tell us. Um, it's also quite plausible from the point of view of um, what people have been telling us for years in clinical settings. So those of us who have worked with people and counsel people hear the word craving a lot, hear the word withdrawal when people go on diets, start to see patterns of eating that may look like tolerance. And a lot of these things happen that make us think that this is plausible, but our field has ignored the possibility for way too many years. Finally, now people are paying attention to it. And then there's, of course, the empirical support, and we'll be hearing a good, about that, good, a good bit about that today. Now, I remember way back when there was a very well-known pioneer in the field of obesity research named Albert Stunkard, who I worked with at the University of Pennsylvania. One of his close colleagues and another pioneer in the field was a person at Columbia University named Ted Van Italy. And Ted did some wonderful studies early on uh, and gave me actually these slides that I've been showing now for 25 years or however long it is of animals given access to a diet that, uh, that resembles the human diet. So here the normal weight lab animal given much more than it will want to eat of the chow will maintain normal weight, but given access to what researchers call a supermarket or cafeteria diet will really look much different. And the striking thing about this picture is that the pellets of chow are sitting there, and the animal, if it were a good nutritional um, a regulator, would ignore the, the bad food and eat the chow diet, but it doesn't. And so it's not uncommon for animals under these conditions to triple their body weight. So, I mean, take your own weight in your mind and multiply it by three, and you get a sense of what a changing environment will do. And so is this an addictive process going on? Are the, the, are the constituents of those foods affecting that animal in a way that creates strong desire for it, craving for it, inability to live without it, et cetera, that would mimic what humans tell us occurs? And there's a lot to be learned from this kind of a model. So if we look at the clinical picture, certainly we hear a lot of, a lot of language of addiction. Um, and as Alyssa mentioned, repeated use despite adverse consequences, high rates of relapse, et cetera, that would, start to, that would make the clinical plausibility of this uh, certainly an issue. The research picture, which you'll hear more about from subsequent speakers, um, I think is very compelling. Both the animals and the human studies that have been done on this suggest to me that this issue of food and addiction is, um, is profoundly possible, if not a reality at the moment. 
and therefore we need to start factoring this into the way we do the pre we, we think about the prevention of obesity. Um, we became interested in this enough um, where we uh, held a meeting at Yale, I think the first meeting on food and addiction, so, uh, several years ago. And Mark Gold, who is a psychiatrist, chair of psychiatry at the University of Florida and an addictions expert, uh, co-chaired the meeting with me. And we drew together people who were experts on uh, addictive behavior and people who were experts on nutrition and obesity. And this is just a partial list of the people who were here, who were at the meeting. But it turned out to be a very interesting meeting. And it also turned out to be the case that the addictions researchers were absolutely certain there was something going on here. The nutrition and obesity people were much more reserved and reluctant to embrace this idea. And I can't figure out exactly why that's the case because they're looking at the same data. You know, we should all be scientists and be objective about it. But I think there's something mixed in there about who came on the idea first. And, and it, I think it was mainly the addiction people who started studying food rather than food people who started studying addiction, with a few exceptions, like the Bart Hobles group and, and the Bean and the, that group at Princeton and um, Alyssa and others have done it, but they're the min minority in the field, and more studies have been done by addictions researchers. So we published a report on this that is available on our website, but listening to those researchers made me pretty convinced that this is a topic worth pursuing. We got involved in this, and uh, Ashley Gearhart, who will be speaking after me, uh, developed a Yale food addiction scale, and she'll talk more about the details of the scale, but it's amazing what kind of a nerve that struck, because once word got out about that, people all around the country are using this food addiction scale in their research, and it's now been translated into a bunch of languages. It's only been out for a short time in a journal, but it's been translated into a bunch of languages. People are using it all around, so there's it's connecting with something that's really very important, and then Ashley published another paper in the Journal of Addiction Medicine uh, looking at the diagnostic criteria for addiction and how those might apply to the obesity and food arena. And that was an excellent paper, and she'll talk more about that as well. But I wanted to take my hat off to Ashley and to, to say how important it's been to have her as part of our team to help study this food addiction issue. So is there this disastrous interaction between the brain and the environment? Now, the brain wouldn't have any, um, there would, would be no addictive manifestation if the food environment were different, but modern food conditions have changed in so many ways, and we'll talk to some extent about what those are, that may be hitting the brain in this adverse way. So it, the, the, the fact is the, the environment pushes some foods over others. So you're going to see a lot more uh, advertising, for example, for sugared beverages than you are for broccoli. Um, the schools are going to push one kind of food over others. Um, the portion sizes encourage people towards some foods and not others. And so there are a number of environmental things that push certain foods. And if those are the same foods that can trigger an addictive process or have some constituent that could act on the brain as an addictive substance, then we've got a bad interaction between the brain and the environment. So let's talk about what some of those features of the food environment might be, and we can think then about what public policy things would make sense given the science on food and addiction. So economics are certainly a player, and there are people out in this area who study this kind of thing. Uh, food access is a real issue. Food deserts for people that don't have access to healthy foods drives them in a certain direction towards some foods and not others. And I'd like to talk about cost of foods as an issue. 
So these are data from Adam Dronowski, um, and it's a complicated graph that I hope will become easier in just a second. But on the x-axis, as you go from left to right, this graph represents the cost of food. So you go from low cost to the left, higher cost to the right. And then the y-axis represents increasing energy density, so number of calories per unit, unit weight um, going from low to high, from, from bottom to top. And I'm going to block out some foods here, and you can get a sense of what this data show. So if you look at the top left, the, the foods that are the cheapest tend to be the ones that are most energy dense, and they're not the foods you'd like to see the population eating more of. The foods that are nutrient rich but calorie poor, the ones on the bottom right, tend to be the highest in cost. So this phenomenon has been documented time and time again, and it has partly to do with the realities of food. Um, there are things like shelf life and spoilage and things that drive up the cost of fruits and vegetables that don't apply to processed foods so much. But there are other government policies that are players in here, too. Um, and the costs have not increased uh, equivalent, in an equivalent way across food categories. So soft drinks that you see on the left between 85 and 2000 increased in cost by 20%, more or less staying stable given inflation. Sugar and sweets increased a little bit more, but fruits and vegetables increased by this much. So during that 15-year period of time, it became relatively more untenable to purchase fruits and vegetables than it was before. So the, the economic environment has grown more adverse with respect to the consumption of these different food categories. Um, there are, of course, the subsidies that people have talked a lot about and care a lot about, and this becomes a real issue for the Farm Bill. The next iteration of the Farm Bill will come around in 2012, and the subsidy program is written right, right into that. The subsidy program has been untouchable from politicians for many years. Uh, it got put into place when Earl Butts was flamboyant, Secretary of Agriculture in the Nixon administration. They put in these series of subsidies for commodity crops, basically to help prop up the economic conditions of the American farmer. And it helped to some extent, although it had negative consequences as well. But the idea was to encourage farmers to grow some crops over others, to subsidize their price so the American farmer would be more competitive in the world market. So corn and soybeans, as you know, led the charge there. So America became the world's largest producer of corn by far. We flooded the world market with low-cost corn. That has all sorts of nutrition implications, but even political implications having to do with world trade and the like. So there are you know, anecdotes like indigenous farmers in Mexico and India who were growing corn could no longer grow it because they were being outbid by the low-cost American corn that was flooding the world market. Those people would go bankrupt, uh, stories of suicide among these individuals. Many of these people moved to the urban areas, creating a whole different set of uh, physical problems, obesity and diabetes among them, um, all affected by American farm policy. So the subsidies to the, the farmers work out in an interesting way. So it becomes inexpensive to feed a cow, a chicken, or a pig because the grain is being subsidized by the government, which makes it less expensive to produce something like this. So when, when you buy this, you're not paying, anybody buys this, they're not paying the real cost. And it's what the economists call externalities because the government is helping underwrite the cost and there are negative consequences, which is what the externalities are all about. When Japanese scientists synthesized corn to create high fructose corn syrup in the 1970s, it became very inexpensive to sweeten things. 
and the government helps buy this. And then, of course, the oil from these things gets used to create foods like this. So the, the way it works out, more or less, is that if you, if you go to a McDonald's or a Burger King and you buy a meal that's a, a combination of these foods, somebody from the government standing there next to you, opening their wallet, helping you buy that meal. If you buy, order a salad and a bottle of water, that government individual walks in the other direction and becomes disinterested. So it's exactly the opposite set of economic circumstances that you'd like to see if agriculture, agriculture policy were lined up with health policy. But until recently, there hasn't even been serious talk about it, much less action on this. Food marketing becomes another really very important issue. Um, the, you could collapse a massive um, literature on food marketing into about three words. It's powerful, it's relentless, and it works. Um, and kids are especially targeted by this. And so, in my mind, it's, it's very hard to believe we can do anything about obesity and all until the food marketing problem is solved. And it's not an easily solved problem because of the First Amendment protecting commercial speech and things like that. But there are ways around it. And there are some state officials, including city attorneys in San Francisco, who are working on innovative legal ways to address this issue of food marketing. And our group is working with these various groups. Uh, you may know that traditional food marketing, when I was a boy, basically was Saturday morning cartoon television and ads for sugared cereals. But that gave way a long time ago to other forms of marketing. So now it's on Facebook, it's specific to the individual, uh, it's on YouTube, it's on basically everywhere, and the internet especially. And the industry has come up, the ad, ad industry and the industries that advertise through it have come up with a series of terms to describe modern marketing techniques. And they talk about them as guerrilla marketing, viral marketing, and stealth marketing. Now, these are not terms that the nutrition crazies have come up with who are opposed to the marketing. This is the industry itself boasting about how they can get do an end run around people's conscious defenses against marketing and, and, and can do an end run about around parents and parental authority to govern the marketing that their children are exposed to. So, I mean, one could pretty readily ask about the ethics and morality of an industry that uses terms like this to describe how they're going after our children. But these, these forms of marketing take many different uh, shapes. So here's an example, um, American Idol Show, which is watched by millions and millions and millions of people, children included. And at one point, these Coca-Cola glasses showed up in front of the judges. I met one of these judges at an event I was at and asked about this, and it was a multi-million dollar exchange between Coke and the program just to have these there. Now, to the extent you have cognitive defenses against marketing, the defenses get ramped up when a commercial comes on. You can leave the room, you can call somebody, you can do a lot of different things, and you can also engage your children in a discussion about what marketing is intended to do. Intended to do. But when it's woven right into the program storyline like this, then it becomes a whole different kettle of fish. And so the marketing becomes a real problem. This kind of thing is happening more and more and more. And if you think about one argument that appeals to uh, people who with more conservative political beliefs is that this is undermining parental authority. Uh, if parents want the right to raise their children as they wish, and this stuff is being done without their permission and even without their knowledge, then it becomes a real problem. And so there are lots of examples of this kind of thing. 
Here's an example of how much marketing there is. You may know that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is the biggest funder of work in the world now on childhood obesity, and they're spending $100 million a year to attack this problem. So let's just say the foundation is going to spend every penny of that. They're going to spend none of it to do this, but let's just say they were going to spend all that $100 million to do public education campaigns to counteract what's going on in the food marketing arena. So they do advertisements, public service things, all that kind of stuff. So the question is, what, by what day of the year has the industry already spent that much just to advertise just junk food just to kids? So you're going to see a dot here, and the dot's going to go around and around, <laughs> and it will land on January 4th. <clears throat> so when you hear the word education, in the context of addressing obesity, it's a trap. And it's the sort of thing that the food industry uses all the time. They embrace the idea of education. They don't fight education programs. Why, won't, why wouldn't they? Well, here's the data right in front of you. Because they can undo it in a second. What a, a government, government could mobilize and spend an incredible amount of money to launch a campaign on this, and they could undo it in a day or two. So it's just not tenable to think about approaching these problems through education. Uh, here's an example of some research that we've done recently on food marketing. This work was led by Jennifer Harris, who's a colleague of mine at the Rudd Center, and um, through a grant that we got from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And we wanted to look at marketing of specific categories of foods to children. And the first year of the project, we addressed the issue of sugar-sweetened cereals. And so we uh, bought a lot of data from Nielsen and other media companies to find out how much marketing was going on, who was being targeted by the marketing, et cetera, and uh, how much and of what type of foods. And we created lists. So the, we didn't create a list of addictive foods, but I, what I'd like to say is let's just say you could, you could create a list of the foods that are most addictive. If we created a list of the foods most marketed overall, and then the foods most marketed to children, how similar would these lists look? And to the extent they would look pretty similar, then we've got a social problem to deal with. So here's exactly what we did. Uh, if you look at the foods that are marketed most to children, sugared cereals is at the top of that list, followed by fast food followed by sugared beverages. This would include children and adolescents. Now, if you created a list of the foods with the most addictive potential, would it look like, like these foods? Well, we'll have to sort through the research and see, but we at least have to ask that question. So the report that we released was called Serial Facts. Uh, there's a website where all this information is available, serialfacts.org, and we have um, this on our main website as well. So what we did was created a rank-ordered list, and this will be a little small for you to see, of the cereals with the worst nutrition rankings at the top and the best ones at the bottom. So the healthier cereals like mini-wheats and things like that are at the bottom of the list. The cereals that have the poorest nutrition are at the top. And then these X's that you see to the right are the foods that are most heavily marketed to children. So if you block this out, if you take the top dozen or so cereals, of with the worst nutrition rankings, those are the ones that are most aggressively marketed to children. So if the industry were intentionally trying to make American children unhealthy, wouldn't this be exactly what they would do? And so is this a social problem? Is this something where public policymakers need to step in and do something? Our belief is yes. 
Now, by the way, the cereal industry claims that their, their defense against data like this is that it's important for children to eat breakfast, and the way you get children to eat breakfast is to put sugar on the cereal. So they've been saying this for a long time. So we did a study, my colleague Marlene Schwartz and Jennifer Harris did a study uh, to test this. So we, they brought kids in, gave them, randomly gave them access to either low-sugared cereals or high-sugared cereals, gave them fruit on the side so they could put whatever they want on it, and gave them sugar on the side so they could add as much sugar as they wanted. And what they found is that children who got the low-sugared cereals added a little sugar to it, but not nearly as much as the sugared cereals had, and they put more fruit on it, and they ended up with just about the recommended level of nutrients intake for what a breakfast for a child should be. The kids, on the other hand, who got the sugared cereals put less fruit on the cereal, so it was less healthy from that point of view, and ate twice the recommended number of calories that an average child should have as a breakfast. So we very often get asked, why wouldn't industry just market healthier foods, healthier cereals to kids? Because they make healthier cereals. Well, there's your answer. You want kids to eat twice as much of your product, you put sugar on it, and you promote those kind of cereals. So that's a problem. Now, beverages become another issue, and the issue of soda taxes comes up. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit as a public policy proposal. But why beverages are such a special case here? Well, first, the marketing of sugar-sweetened beverages begins early in life. Here would be a, a dramatic example of that, um, baby bottles with soft drink company logos on them. But uh, think for a moment about uh, Coke and Pepsi. So if you walk down the street and you ask people, are you a Coke or a Pepsi person, you'll get an immediate response. People are one or the other. You guys are probably one or the other. Um, if you ask people, can you tell the difference between the two, most people will say yes. Some people are, are completely convinced that they can tell the difference. And then when you really do the test, far fewer people can tell the difference than believe they can. So how does this square up? I mean, how does this happen psychologically? You've got basically indistinguishable products, but you've got incredibly strong brand loyalty and people convincing themselves they can tell the difference when they may not be able to. Well, it's all marketing, of course. You know, it's, it's who had the best colors, who had the best athletic celebrity or music celebrity to attach to and things like this. All happen, and they're very, they're very powerful and persuasive. And this happens at young ages. It could have been what, who had the contract in your school. It could have been a lot of different factors like that to drive this. But this very strong brand loyalty develops that's out of touch with the, the reality of these products doing, being different from one another. But of course, people couldn't admit that. People can't admit that they've, been, that they've succumbed to marketing. And so what they do is they say that there are product differences, and that's why I like one over the other. And so Mark, one of the problems with trying to do something about marketing is that everybody in the country believes they're not affected by it, but they believe everybody else is. And so the idea is I'm strong because I'm not affected, everybody else is weak, so why should government have to do anything about it? Um, so you may know that the world's most valuable brand is Coca-Cola. Coke is, the, the word Coke is the second most widely recognized word in the world after OK. <coughs> And the consumption of different beverages has changed a lot. So this graph shows the consumption trends in milk and soft drinks from the 70s through early 2000. And if you look at these, these trend lines, it looks like this. 
in the day looks similar for adults and children. So this is obviously a problem, sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. One of the problems, potential problems with calories that come in beverages is the body's poor compensation for them. And there's a fair, a growing body of research on this that I find pretty well done that suggests that when people take in calories in liquid form, the body doesn't, ha doesn't handle them very well, and it does, they sort of escape the body's calorie-detecting radar, if you will. So let's just put some hypothetical numbers to this. Let's say we divide the room in half right down the middle here, and you all eat whatever your typical lunch is. It'll differ from person to person, but whatever you normally eat, you eat for lunch today. This room, this side of the room, we give you 200 extra calories beyond your normal lunch, and they come in solid food. It could be pizza, ice cream, cookies, anything. This side of the room gets the same 200 extra calories, but you get it in liquid beverages, or in beverages with sugar in them. And then we follow you at subsequent meals to see how well this side of the room and that side of the room compensate for the extra 200 calories. Do you normally cut back to try to adjust for the extra calories? This side of the room will do better than that side of the room, according to the research. And so it could be that drinking sugared beverages is an assault against the body's homeostatic, calorie-regulating mechanisms, weight-regulating mechanisms, and the constant consumption of these, some people drinking them all day long, many people drinking much more than one serving a day, could create enough weight problems to create a public health issue. Now, sugar and addiction also becomes a key player in this, and of course we'll hear more about that later, but I find the research on this quite compelling. There's also the issue of caffeine and what this does. And with Roland Griffiths, who's a, um, a professor at Johns Hopkins, and Mark Gold, who I mentioned before, I'm writing a paper on the issue of caffeine and how, it, how it's really amounts to a calorie-carrying vehicle. Because most things with caffeine added, not 100%, but many things with caffeine added have um, sugar attached to them as well. And so caffeine comes coupled with calories a lot. The caffeine is added gratuitously to almost all the products that it's in. Uh, even things like uh, the, the flagship carbonated beverages, people think the caffeine is there naturally. Well, pretty little of it's there naturally. Most of it's added. Uh, it's added to things like food that ordinarily wouldn't have it, alcohol, and there's a big controversy now about that. Um, the industry says that it's a taste enhancer, but when you do uh, carefully controlled studies, people can't detect the taste of it, so it's actually being added for other reasons. And then, of course, caffeine itself has been shown to be addictive and has class classic addictive properties. And so the question is, when sugar and caffeine get put together, is it, is it an additive or multiplicative effect? And we don't really know that. But the fact that the two things occur together in a lot of foods becomes a problem. And you've got the obvious examples of the energy drinks that are being promoted so heavily. Uh, you've got things like this Butterfinger bar called Butterfinger Buzz that has caffeine added to it. And there are many examples of this in the food supply, but it becomes a real issue because sugar comes coupled with it. I'm going to skip over that and then, then talk about this issue about what we should do about these sugared beverages. And so if, but before I get to the specific public policy proposals about sugar and beverages and things, where should our focus be? If, if this issue of food and addiction is a reality, if there's really some substance here, should we focus it on the individual who may struggle with this issue of food and addiction, or should the focus be on the food? 
And there's a very critical distinction there. And I'd say that from a clinical point of view, in terms of compassionate help for the people who struggle with these issues, focus on the individual makes sense. But from a public health point of view, for affecting the broad range of people in the population, focusing on the food rather than the people becomes of, of important strategic value. So let's just say we can talk about a degree of addiction. How addicted are people to food? Now again, the, the concept has to, be, has to be worked out and more research has to be done, but let's just say we could create a dimension of no addiction at all on the left, a very heavy addiction out here on the front, on, on the right-hand side. So people who meet some diagnostic criteria, if they're developed at some point, let's say for the DSM, for something like food and addiction, are going to be the people out at the tail of this distribution. And for those people who are in that tail, it's incredibly important that they get help and their, their suffering needs to be addressed and all that sort of thing has to occur. But the number of people affected is small. So from a public health point of view, that's not going to help address the obesity problem at all. What we believe is very important is once you cross a line where some addiction occurs, that in, in between there and here is really where the public health significance is. So the people who, whose lives have been really completely disrupted by an addictive relationship with food are out here, but the kids who want their soft drinks every day are in the middle. The people that are eating just enough of this stuff to increase weight and undermine their nutrition are in the middle, and that's really where the public health significance is. And that's where you'd want to focus on the food rather than the people. Because, and, and I'll, I'll give you some reasons for that here. So if you focus on the individual, it, you, you, it's easy. You don't really have too many enemies. Um, no industry is going to fight you because it's the person's fault that they're that way. Uh, and you don't have to make systemic changes. When you focus on the food, the fight becomes much harder because then you've got an industry to war against. Downsides of the individual focus are that the problem can be dismissed because the people themselves can be dismissed as being outliers, different, weak, whatever it happens to be, attributes that I think are unfair and untrue but will get assigned by society. It further stigmatizes obesity potentially because people calling them food addicts who calling themselves food addicts who then will get dismissed by society makes it harder to make the case that obesity is caused by the environment. As I said it overlooks the majority, the industry evades blame this way and you help people one and one at a time which is important for the people, but from a public health point of view, again, doesn't, isn't an efficient use of money. So we believe the focus is better placed on the food. And so I'm, I would be less interested in finding out which individuals cross some diagnostic line and could be considered food addicts as I would be in identifying the foods most likely to trigger an addictive process because then that leads right down a positive public policy road because you could do something about access to those foods, formulation of those foods, marketing of the foods, et cetera. So the guiding philosophy that, that we use at the Rudd Center is borrowed from both public health and economics and it has to do with changing defaults. And then we'll loop this back to the issue of food and addiction. So Public Health 101 is, uses the upstream and downstream metaphor that you can wait till the stream is polluted and then spend a lot of money to try to clean it up and you may not be successful, or you can prevent this from occurring in the first place. And so this is clinical medicine. Up there is the public health approach. 
And that's quite well accepted in the public health world, but not by society in general and not by the medical establishment so much and not by government authorities, although the focus on prevention is becoming more and more keen at the moment. So if we think about how to best make change in our culture, we usually default to beginning with the individual. Smoking, alcohol, AIDS, whatever you might happen to say, we tend to think that if we give people knowledge or if we motivate them somehow, they'll change their behavior. And so we educate and we implore. And this has been government's role. Um, this has been the White House's role until recently with the Obama administration in dealing with the obesity issue. The White House has been little more than a cheerleader standing on the sidelines imploring the team to behave better. And this has obviously not worked, and it has, has uh, uh, subverted the rightful role of government to get involved in these issues. But this is how we've approached it. So our hope is that we can educate and we implore. This is what we begin with as a default. In the case of obesity, we have medical interventions as well we can put into the picture, and we hope that this creates less obesity. But this, of course, has been wishful thinking because we've been doing this for 40 years and prevalence has gone through the roof. So at some point, even the person most likely to embrace this concept would have to declare it's been a failed experiment and that we need to take a new approach. So here's an example of how this may work. So let's look at how well education works. This is a graph of people in the population getting the recommended levels of physical activity each day from 86 to 2000. Now during that period of time, what happened? A lot. The Surgeon General's report on exercise, <coughs> health clubs opening everywhere, exercise devices all over TV. There's not a person in the country that doesn't know they should be exercising. And so if knowledge and education and imploring people to exercise was going to work, you'd expect to see increasing trends in physical activity over that period of time. All right, but may, maybe, it's, maybe it's different with diet. So here are the percentage of adults getting the recommended levels of fruit and vegetables every day over that period of time. Well, maybe we're doing better with our children's intake of fruit and vegetables over time. So educating and imploring and standing on the sidelines, cheering people to behave differently just won't work and we need to do more. And the question is, what, what more do we do? Well, do we do more education and more imploring? It doesn't seem to be a very useful enterprise, as I said before, especially if you consider what the food industry is doing to educate people according to their view of things. So if we look at what we're doing now, we're basically doing these things. And the question is, can we take a different approach? Can we just wipe the slate clean and start from scratch and take a different view? So if we want the individual to change, does it make sense to begin the picture before the individual ever gets involved in the decision-making process? Can you create a different set of environmental circumstances that will make it easier for the healthy decisions to be made? And that's what public policy can potentially do. So can you change the environment? conditions? Can you use economic change? How can legislation be used? How can the regulatory authority of government be used to create what the economists have called optimal defaults? So if you come away with anything from my talk today, I hope it's these two words, optimal defaults. Can we create a different set of defaults that lead people down a healthy road rather than the disastrous unhealthy road that we now have? Huge portion sizes are a suboptimal default. Relentless marketing of unhealthy food is a bad default. 
economic policy that pushes some foods over others is a bad default. So you get the picture here. And the question is, can these things be changed? Can we create optimal defaults, and will that lead to less obesity? So here's an example right out of the economics literature. Uh, Labson and colleagues, a group at Harvard, have studied people enrolling in pension plans. Now, when people take a job on, uh, some employers enroll them by default in a pension plan but give them the choice of opting out. In other cases, employers don't enroll the employee by default, but they have the choice of opting in. So the, cons the, the employee has the same set of choices. They can be in or out. It's completely free choice. Just the default changes what you're automatically either in or out to begin with. And boy, does it make a difference. So if you consider enrolling in the pension plan a social good, which most people do because you're saving money for your future, you're less dependent on the state in, in your, your later years, et cetera, here are the numbers. If the employee has to take the active decision to enroll, you get about half people enrolling. If it's automatic enrollment, you get about 100%. Now, you could try to educate your way from 50 to 100%. You could try to implore people to do this, and you might get some something done, but it would cost a lot, and you come nowhere near something like this as a simpler, which is just to change the default. Now, here's, here's a stunning, stunning example from the health arena, people who are organ donors. So if you look at this graph, to the left of the line, you, you see, you're going to see four countries in Europe, Denmark, Netherlands, UK, and Germany, that have the U.S. model to be an organ donor, where you're not an organ donor by default, but you get your driver's license, then you can opt in to the program. The countries to the right of the line do the opposite. You're an organ donor by default, but you're given the choice of opting out. Same choices, same set of circumstances, and you can imagine from seeing the pension plan data what these are about to look like. But it's remarkable what they do look like. So the U.S. model, that's what you get. The default, changing the default, you get that. Now, the scientists in the crowd, just can, you, can we get 99.98% of people to do anything? To breathe? <coughs> I mean, that's unbelievable, those kind of numbers. Now, again, you could never educate your way from the left to the right, no matter how much resource you devoted to it, or you can just change the law. You can just change the default. So the question is, are there dietary equivalents of this and things that could be done? Well, there sure are. And here's one example. Uh, some of you may know that Thomas Frieden, who's now the head of the CDC, was the health commissioner in New York City. He was supported by a very activism health-related uh, mayor, Michael Bloomberg, to get rid of trans fats in New York City restaurants. So this is something the industry fought against, sued the city. Lots of things happened, but the city finally prevailed. So if you go to a restaurant in New York City now, you're not going to eat trans fat. So they've been wiped out of the restaurant picture. The industry said it was going to cost us too much. It was going to restrict consumer choices. It was going to make food more expensive. None of that happened because it was an easy change for the industry to make. And the default changed. So again, think of educating your way to that outcome. Trans fats is a hard concept to understand. You'd have to label the heck out of everything. Restaurants would have to have alternatives. It would be a mess. Or you can just change the default. So there are other examples of this in the dietary arena. Uh, things like menu labeling would be an example of changing the default. 
getting portion sizes to be different, encouraging or mandating industry to reformulate the foods so they have less sugar, fat, and salt per serving would be an example of changing the defaults. Cleaning up the school environment creates a different set of defaults. Marketing practices become a different set of defaults. So we approach this with what we call strategic science, and we do a, a series of studies that try to help government officials gather the information they need in order to address this issue. And so if we think about public policy priorities at the Rudd Center, we're focused on a, a number of things. One is to protect children. Um, from and so that would involve making the school environment a healthier thing and then restricting food marketing directed at kids. Uh, we believe this is a winnable public victory because most people believe that children are a protected group and deserve a special level of protection from negative influences. Most people are now agreed to the fact that food marketing and schools selling junk food is constitutes a negative impact and so there's a lot of uh, momentum behind this. We also believe changing the food economics becomes a very, very important issue, and I'll talk about taxes in a minute, and then using legislation, regulation, and litigation to help do things like address food marketing become important. So these are some, but not all, of the public policy priorities we're working on. Um, we have been working hard on the issue of a sugar-sweetened beverage tax. And so one of the first recent papers we wrote about this was a thing I did with Tom Frieden that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. And in this paper, we proposed a penny per ounce tax on, sugar, on beverages with added sweetener. So um, added sweetener that's caloric. So, any, so any, any sugar beverage wouldn't be included. Diet beverages were not. We can talk about that. Water obviously would, would not be 100% juice would not be taxed under this idea. Um, this, uh, this concept now has been um, uh, embraced to the extent that we're getting calls almost every day from some new city and state where they're considering taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. Places as unlikely as Mississippi have a group of mayors that are very committed to the idea of a sugar-sweetened beverage tax. Legislation um, got announced yesterday by Dean Flores, one of your senators in California, on a sugar-sweetened beverage tax structured a little bit differently than the penny announced, but it's close to it. Uh, New Hampshire has introduced legislation. Uh, Vermont is considering it. Connecticut, New York State's holding hearings in the next two weeks on this. Philadelphia's holding hearings in the next two weeks. It's just, just out there now, and it's an idea whose time we hope has come. So my guess is that once you get a first couple of adopters, you get a state and a city that do it, then it'll happen quickly in other places. And one of the reasons is that the revenue stream is just too enticing for governments that are broke this, the, these days. So how well would a sugar-sweetened beverage tax work? We can only guess from economic estimates on elasticities of soda consumption, but the most recent data we have is that a penny per ounce tax could drive down average population consumption by 20, as much as 23%. The average health, the annual, the healthcare savings over a 10-year period nationally would be projected to be $50 billion. That number comes from the Congressional Budget Office. And the revenue generated from such a tax would be $150 billion over a 10-year period. And if some or all of that money were earmarked for programs devoted to the prevention of obesity, especially programs that would disproportionately help the poor, that would help offset any regressive nature of the tax, and you get win-win. You get 
drop in consumption, you get money to do prevention programs. And I can think of no other intervention that's ever been proposed to deal with obesity that costs nothing that would work would have immediate impact and raise money that could be used for other programs. So that's why this concept of sugar-sweetened beverage tax is so appealing to us. The industry quarrels about this, as you might imagine, in a big way. There was an article that some of you may have seen on the front page of the Sunday Los Angeles Times two Sundays ago, where they did an investigative report on how much lobbying money the sugar beverage industry has been spending to fight the soda tax idea. And if you look at the graph, Coke, Pepsi, and their trade association, American Beverage Association, how much they've spent on lobbying. 2003, 2004, 2005, it's a flat line at about a million dollars for each of these players. And then you get to 2009, it goes up to 20 million bucks. I mean, an amazing increase in lobbying against that. So how do you interpret this uh, struggle from the industry? Well, is it, it, the fact that they're fighting us so hard could very easily mean, and it does to me, that we're on the right track that if it weren't politically feasible, why would they have to fight it? And if it weren't going to affect consumption, why would they care to fight it? And so this means to me that this is a good thing. So the sugared beverage, I think, would have a, a special appeal as an initial target to try to deal with the obesity issue, if for no other reason than it's the single greatest source of added sugar in the American diet. But, and of course a great contributor to calories, but given the addictive possibility that sugar and the caffeine and their combination may be creating, then it becomes especially important in the context of what's happening in this conference. So that's one public policy proposal about restricting marketing, making the schools a healthier environment. All these things become part of an overall collage of public policy possibilities that I think are really very important and offer a lot of hope for doing something about the obesity problem. So I'm going to scroll to the end here. We have on our website a number of public policy briefs about nutrition in schools, menu labeling in restaurants, access to food in, in populations, of uh, the sugar-sweetened beverage tax and things like that. So if you want to know about the arguments for and against these things um, and what the pub specific public policy proposals should be, they're all available on our website. So I'm going to conclude with the following. I'm delighted this conference is taking place. Um, I thank Mary for her, you know, intellectual inspiration that, you know, inspired Alyssa and others here at UCSF to have things like this. I'm really happy I could take part. And um, I really think that this topic is so, so important from an intellectual but also a public policy point of view and a very human point of view for the people who struggle with these problems. And that uh, my prediction, although my predictions are wrong as much as anybody else's, is that within the next several years, this is going to really become a big player in the way we, we discourse about nutrition and obesity issues and will become part of the public policy landscape as I think it should be. And the best way to make it so and the best way to make the most informed decisions are for the best science to be done on it. So those of you in the room who are contributing to that science, thank God you're doing it. I think it will be very important in the overall scheme of things as we address this problem of obesity as a nation. So thank you very much for being here and I'm happy to answer questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.